Join me in chapter 20 of John's Gospel. If you would, if you're a guest with us today, we'd love for you to find a Bible in the pew back in front of you, uh, if you don't have one already, and we're on 907, page 907, and we are reading through and studying John's Gospel as a church family. So we'd love for you to join me there in chapter 20, and we're going to pick up in verse 24. One of the things that I have learned in Christian ministry over time is that there's a fair amount of confusion about what faith is. And I think there's confusion about what faith is for a couple different reasons. One, we just, the word can be used in a lot of different contexts. Like, hey, you can do this. I've got faith in you, right? That's a good thing to say to somebody. Um, and, or, or that business deal was done in good faith, right? Appropriate use of the term, but meaning some, something different. Or in the context of a terminal disease or the loss of a spouse, we will often hear people say, I don't know how they could make it through without what? Without faith. And so I think the frequent use of the word and how it applies in so many different contexts probably contributes to some confusion. We also, and I think this is probably more significant, hear faith used in an explicitly religious context but not with reference to Christianity. So that probably adds to our confusion. You know, it used to be in our American cultural context, whether you were in the North or the South, it used to be the case that faith was a clear reference to Judeo-Christian belief. Um, that is not the case anymore. In fact, most people outside of the church will now speak of faith purposefully in a generic sense uh, to really promote the idea, often to promote the idea that not one faith is better than another. As long as you believe something, as long as you believe in something, it said, that's what's important. So generic faith is important. N not faith in a particular, unique, saving God. And I think you might even see it more in the holidays. I think you'll see the contrast between generic faith and the Christian faith more during the holidays because Christmas, Christmas is actually tied, originally tied, to one particular faith tradition that is centered on Jesus Christ. So I think during the holidays you'll probably be likely to hear even more often this language of faith in the generic sense. And here's the thing, I want to encourage you, don't be mad about that. Don't, be, don't, get, don't get frustrated and mad about that. It's really an amazing opportunity for us. It's an amazing opportunity for us as believers to put Christianity back on the table. Not to, not to yell at the culture, not to be mad at the culture, not to rebuke the culture, but to step into a conversation about faith, because I think that's going to happen probably sometime in the next couple of weeks, you're probably going to get a chance to hear and maybe even step into a conversation about faith. And I want to help you get ready for that. I want to help you get ready for that. I want to encourage you to listen well to your family, your friends, your coworkers, and don't argue with them. That, like, that might be some of our tendency to argue with them, to show them what's right. But don't argue with them. Listen. Listen. And then gently step into the conversation and simply 
tell them about what God's grace has done for you in and through Jesus Christ. Just simply step into the conversation, not to, not to win a convert, not to argue your case, but really just to tell them that the gift of God's grace has radically changed your life. And that's what makes Christianity different. So I want to do a couple things today. I'm hoping to get you ready for that conversation. I think it's coming. I think that conversation's ready, it's coming, and I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. That's the first thing I want to do. Try to help you get ready for that moment so that you're not just kind of stuck not knowing what to say. But secondly, I also want to clear up some confusion about faith from the perspective of Scripture and Christianity. So to do that, let me ask you to pick up in verse 24, chapter 20, with me in this classic passage about faith. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So Jesus had appeared to them, he had appeared to most of the disciples, but Thomas was not there, we talked about that last week. Now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came the first time, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, uh, seven day, a, a week later, essentially, this is really an idiom for a week later, seven days later, so we really think it's seven days later. A week later, on Sunday, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be on you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and touch my side and do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, say this phrase with me, ready? My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want to I put four thoughts on the table about what the Christian faith is and hopefully clear, clear up some confusion about what faith is and what faith is not as the Bible teaches it. Here's the first thing. Faith comes not by sight. Look at verse 25. Faith comes not by sight. Verse 25, second part of the verse, unless I see. Mark those three words. Like if you make notes in your Bible, underline those three words. Unless I see, Thomas says. So the consistent teaching of the whole Bible is this that the essence of saving faith and trusting God, the essence of saving faith is, is actually trusting the God who you cannot see. We see this from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, that, that it is the consistent teaching of the Bible that the essence of saving faith is trusting in God even when you cannot see Him. Hebrews chapter 11, faith is the essence of things hoped for, the conviction, the certainty of things not seen. Or again in Romans 8, now hope that is seen, it's not hope. Who hopes for what they see? 
If this scene in the life of Jesus and the disciples, if this Thomas scene is anything for us, it's a lesson on biblical faith. Jesus wants everyone in the world from this moment on to see the importance of believing. In fact, this is kind of striking if you think about it. Very few people in the history of the world ever saw Jesus live and in person. All of the saints up to that time, and so billions of people historically, of the, of the, of the billions of people who've ever lived up to Jesus' day and since Jesus' day, just a small micro group of people saw him live and in person. So Jesus is, what Jesus is going after here is that everyone who, other than those who would see him live and in person, would at some point come to the place of being willing to trust him and believe in him. In fact, John, as a writer of the gospel, is, is, is going after that very thing. He's writing the story of the gospel so that everybody who has not seen Jesus and never will see Jesus live and in person on the earth until he comes again would believe in him and trust in him by faith. By trusting in one that they could not see. That, that's a really important concept to get from the Bible. That, that though God is invisible, he can be trusted. That though God is invisible, he will, for a period of time, make himself visible in the full disclosure of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That, like the incarnation is all about that. We've been singing about that this morning. That Emmanuel is God with us and that he was born to raise the sons of earth and born to give us second birth. He came to make all of this make sense. But very few people would actually see, like think about it, very few people would actually see Jesus live and in person. So the whole point of this paragraph is captured in verse 29. Blessed are those who having not yet seen me or having never seen me would believe. John writes his whole gospel to that end. I want to be careful here not to overstate Thomas's skepticism. When he says, unless I see, I, I think we need to be careful not to overstate, and we have often, I think, overstated his skepticism. I think his, his unless I see, I won't believe, his response makes a lot of sense. If you, listen, if you had seen Jesus die the way he died, if you had seen the spikes pierce his hands and pierce his feet and a sword go into his side, if you had seen the bloody carcass that remained, you would say something like this. I, I'm not going to believe he's alive until I see and touch him because I know he was dead. In, in other words, Thomas's statement has more to do with him knowing for sure Jesus fully died than it is that Thomas is sort of this perennial skeptic, that he's always prone to skepticism, uh, that, that he's never really interested in believing, uh, that he's always prone to existential doubt or something like that. That's not the way that the whole gospel presents him. In fact, he's actually seen earlier in the gospel as a, a loyal disciple, just like you and I, who would be trying to follow Jesus loyally, but struggling with the essence of faith. I should pause here and say, if you are struggling with 
the death of Jesus and with the claims the other disciples are making about him, that's us, you're in a good place. That's not a bad place to be. It might take eight days. It might take eight years for faith to really make sense, make sense to you. But here's the good news. If you stick around and you keep reading the book and you keep listening and you keep asking God, I think Jesus will show up just like he did with Thomas. Meaning, he's not going to show up to you live and in person, but he will show up to you as the Spirit of God gives you eyes to see that Jesus really was crucified and risen on your behalf. And that he's your hope. It's not a bad place to be. Between verse 25 and 26. So you have permission from us as a church. We're not going to berate you because you have not yet believed. We're not going to beat you up. We're not going to argue you to death. You, you need space to believe. You know, that's one of the things we have not given our children as parents. Space to believe. You need space to believe. So, faith comes not by sight. Here's the second thing we learn. Faith says to Jesus, this is what we hope one day will happen. If you've not yet trusted Christ, if, you, if the gospel's not really made sense to you, it hasn't come alive to you yet, here's what we're looking forward to. Here's the moment, right? The moment is what happens to Thomas. Faith comes to the place of saying, my Lord and my God. This is where generic faith collides with the unique and radical claims of Christianity. That Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, dead, and buried, is now alive again, and he's standing before Thomas. Now look how it unfolds. After a week of Thomas's wondering, well, just let that sink in for a minute. A week, seven days of Thomas wondering, what are they talking about? How come I didn't get to see him? A week of wondering. Jesus appears in this miraculous way again into a locked room and speaks peace and hope and, and, and into Thomas, with special attention to Thomas. And he addresses Thomas's exact words as if he had been present to hear them. He was not present to hear them, but he knows them. He knows the exact words. And so he says, here, touch here, touch, look, here, you can see, touch, I'll, I'll show you. You can see, here, touch, I'll show you. Do you think Thomas, now hang on a second before you answer, because there's two good answers here. Do you think Thomas reached out and touched Jesus and believed? Or do you think at that moment seeing him was enough? In either case, I kind of, I, I like in my sanctified imagination to think that he's so overcome with the presence of the risen Lord Jesus that he takes this first massive step of faith and says, oh no, I see you, I don't have to touch it, I'm feeling it right here, I worship you, you are my Lord and my God. I will worship the crucified and risen Jesus. 
So at the sight of Jesus, Thomas has this spontaneous realization. It all comes together. He'd not yet previously been understanding these things. John tells us that even. They did not understand that he would suffer and rise from the dead, but now they're seeing it. The parts of the puzzle are really all coming together, and, and, and it's hard to imagine, as one writer put it, a more powerful and convincing declaration than this. My Lord, my Master, and my God. People sometimes say that in Christianity, none of the gospel writers actually claim that Jesus was God or that Jesus himself didn't think of himself as fully divine. That, that's, that's silly. It's just not accurate. John is writing for the purpose of us reading his story and saying, Jesus is God, worthy of worship, obeisance, and reverence, worthy of saying, my Lord and my God. It's in this moment that the gospel of John reaches its high point. John wants you and I as readers to identify with Thomas so much so that you would, whether it's eight days or eight months or eight years, you would all of a sudden awaken to this confession, my Lord and my God, I want to worship the crucified and risen Savior. He's, I am his, he's mine. He's my hope. And I'm going to, re- I haven't seen him. Like, I believe the story, but I haven't seen him live and in person. But I know he's real, and I'm going to trust in him. And I'm going to follow him for the rest of my life. That's where John, as a gospel writer, wants to take you. And Thomas's confession, by the way, becomes the confession of the church from this moment on, so much so that to call yourself Christian would mean you'd confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. For with the heart one believes and is justified, that is with the heart you believe by faith and you're made right with God, justified, and with the tongue, I'm sorry, with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, Romans 10. Christianity is not a generic faith and in fact it it can't be one of many viable options. It's either the true living faith or really it is a a myth and a hoax. Christianity says faith in the crucified, risen Christ alone can bring people into a saving relationship with God. Which brings me to my third point, and that is that faith, it brings life change. Uh, we're changed by the gospel, and so it's not enough to just join a church or intellectually assent to faith. Faith means life changes for you. Everything starts to change. Where are you getting this? Well, I'm getting it from verses 30 and 31, where really the whole purpose of John's book In fact, some of you might even have in your Bible a little statement that says, the purpose of this book, kind of a a title heading, that belief would bring change and that by believing, the, the very last line of verse 31, you might have life in his name. So that John's always talking about not just eternal life, sweet by and by, heavenly life, but in a qualitatively different kind of life right now. 
which is why the signs are built the way they are throughout the gospel, so that he's changing things. He changes water into wine as the Lord of the feast. He, he cleanses the temple to usher in the true temple that is himself. He heals a nobleman's son. He heals a lame man. He feeds the multitude. He heals the blind. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Look at verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. I love this. This is so good. So the book of John is built around seven signs. Those of you who've studied it with us, you know the, that, that, that theme, that the, the, the first half of the book is really built around seven signs, um, the culminating sign being Lazarus being raised from the dead. This, look at this great phrase right here in verse 30. Jesus did many other signs, not a few others, not seven more, many other signs. In fact, John is saying, if I were to take the time to write out all the other things, I, all the people I saw him touch, all the people I saw him love, all the people I saw him heal, all the people I saw him forgive, the book would go on and on and on. That'd be impossible to write that book. I want you to know so many other things Jesus did. And what, what he was doing in all of that was changing not just the world, but people, changing people bringing life to dead souls, bringing life to distorted worlds, making people whole again. He came to cover their shame. He came to restore us to a place of honor and dignity with God and with one another. Do you remember the woman who was caught in adultery? This is one of my favorite scenes in the gospel. There, there these, there's this woman who's caught in adultery and her accusers, all these right, self-righteous, you can just feel the self-righteousness dripping down from this group of men surrounding her. And they're accusing her and Jesus, Jesus this is a great line from Jesus, who among you is ready to cast the first stone? And I, they just sense the holiness of God in their presence. Jesus, the embodied holiness of God, and they start walking away. And then he, you know, and he's kneeling down on the ground, and I think it's more important that, it, that his posture is one of kneeling and he's writing on the ground. We don't know what he's writing, but his humility, his, his getting down on the ground and, and saying, looking up to this shamed woman, where are your accusers? I'm not going to condemn you either. I don't con I'm not condemning you. I came to bring life. What you're looking for in sexual relationships, in adultery, in promiscuity, in whatever you want, I came to bring you life. You won't find it there, but you can find it in me. Faith brings real life change. It's not enough to be a member of a church. It's not enough to attend church a few times a year. It's not enough to, to, to assent to intellectual facts about Jesus. We're talking about throwing yourself, all of you, on the mercy of Christ, believing in Him. Now, let me try to secure this point a little further in to your heart and mind by showing you something in verses 30 and 31 that I had not really seen before. Look at the word believe. Verse 31, believe, back up to verse 30, uh, or yeah, twice in 31, I'm sorry, twice in 31, back up to verse 29. If you're, if you're a, a note taker, draw a circle around Thomas believing in 29, others believing 
who have not seen, and then the purpose of the book, believe. This, this gospel is the gospel of belief. What, what John's moving toward is that people would believe and actively trust in him. Take a guess, just take a guess, at what word, what is John, so other than the word Jesus, 241 times, or the word Father, 136 times, guess what the Apostle John's favorite word is in this book? Believe. I mean, we're leaving out conjunctions and personal pronouns, but like words that are significant. Believe. And interestingly, drive it, let me drive it home a little further, it doesn't ever appear, never, out of 98 instances, it never appears in noun form. Like faith is something, like faith, just you describe the Christian faith in noun form. It doesn't ever appear that way. In John's gospel, faith is always in the active sense. Believe. Why don't you believe? Will you believe? I hope that those who have not seen me will believe, right? Over and over again, John is saying, man, you should believe. You should actively trust in Jesus Christ, and it will change your life. It'll radically change your life. A couple weeks back, Brother Carey talked about Joseph of Arimathea and asked this question, what on earth would make him go from secret disciple for fear of the Jews? Joseph was a secret disciple. He was a, of, um, of the Sanhedrin. And what, what would make him go public? And he suggested that seeing the attributes of God displayed on the cross played into his willingness to say, man, I, I got to go public. I want the body of Jesus to take care of him. And he goes to Pilate and he asks him, and he runs the risk of either uh, being really, probably runs the risk of his own life, being threatened either by Pilate or the Sanhedrin. Certainly this would have cost him with financial pressure and good standing and influence in Jerusalem. But none of that matters to him, we were told last uh, couple weeks back, because he's been overcome with Jesus. And so, what did he see on the cross? This is what he said. Forgiveness, kindness, and peace. Who could practice God-honoring forgiveness while being unjustly accused, illegally tried, say, Father, forgive them? Kindness, who can show kindness while in physical agony on a cross? Peace, who can speak tender shalom into the heart of a mother who's watching her son die and say, woman, behold your son, John, behold your, your new mother. Who can do that? Joseph of Arimathea is moved by the forgiveness he's never seen before, by kindness like he's never seen before, by peace like he's never seen before. I'm telling you, if saving faith in Jesus does anything, it changes you so that you yourself want to experience forgiveness and you want to experience kindness and you want to experience peace. I recently exchanged grace with someone And in that exchange of grace, 
we were, there was, an, there was an apology and there was a receiving of forgiveness. Very few things are as powerful as exchanging grace with somebody. You need to taste that. Kindness, instead of letting hatred and resentment grow in you, you keep, th- you keep trying to figure out how to short-circuit resentment and hatred. And Look, the beauty of kindness will grow in you when you follow Christ, when you, when you genuinely have faith. Forgiveness is going to be yours. Kindness is going to be yours. Peace is going... So in this season, we were just talking about it a little while ago, somebody in between the services. In this season when it's just so crazy and busy and we've said yes to a thousand things and everybody's agendas are competing like a stinking battle, like a football game, like a SEC football game. (laughs) I don't know. I don't even know why that came out. Was that this weekend? Look, it's crazy in a season, in a holiday season, when our lives should be characterized by the very peace of Christ. It's like one competition, one fight after another. All of these competing agendas and schedules and things and hopes and expectations. It's really crazy and backwards. If saving faith in Jesus does anything, it changes you. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and if you believe in Him, if you actively trust in Him, verse 31, you will have life in His name, a qualitatively different kind of life. We don't have time to do it this morning, it's a different sermon, but if you want to go back into John's gospel and just study the concept of life, you will see that to be true. He's not just talking about then in heaven, he's talking about now. Here's the last thing, number four. Faith is best discovered with other disciples. I hear people say all the time, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, right? Agreed. You don't. You do not have to go to church to be a Christian. But I I will tell you this. When you meet a mature believer, when you meet mature followers of Christ, you will hear this to to a person. Point number four. Your faith will best be discovered and best lived out with other disciples. Now, some of you are hesitant about this because you've been burned by the church, maybe even by this church. You've, been, you've not been able to trust leadership. You've not been able to, uh, maybe you, you've got an aversion to the institutional church, and I understand that. And there's, maybe there's 25 different reasons why, why you kind of like, hey, I can be a believer, but I don't have to go to church. I, I don't want to discount any of those reasons. They may be very real. It, it, it still does not change the reality that scripture repeatedly teaches the beautiful value of discovering faith with other believers. Notice this in verse 24, the disciples, the 12. Verse 25, the disciples gathered together. Verse 26, the disciples. Just a couple of references. One scholar has actually made a case that one of the main themes throughout the whole Gospel of John is that he's building a new covenant community. He's making a new people for himself. 
That's where you best discover your faith, with other people who are trying, yeah, and we're going to bump into each other, and yes, we're going we're to experience change, change together, and yes, we're going to need to ex- experience forgiveness and, and, and help one another and defer to one another, but there's no better place than the bride of Christ to discover your faith and to walk with those who love you and Thomas, Thomas is trying to figure this out. Well, like, I'm with these guys. They're all talking about having seen him. I haven't seen him. He's kind of feeling left out. Stay with the group. Stay with the disciples. Keep reading the book. Don't, don't, make, the, don't make the disciples with whom you're growing pay for the sins of the past. Step in and feed the center of gospel life with the other believers. Is this making sense? I, one of the things I wanted to try to do this morning is encourage you to get ready for this conversation that's probably going to happen sometime during the holidays about faith. Right? I'm not trying to get you to load your bazooka so you can go in and explode them and teach them the way of Jesus. Okay, That's not what we're doing but I do want you to be ready. And one of the reasons is because the world is hopeless. Like one of the main reasons for you to be ready for this conversation about faith and to go in gently and listen well and be compassionate and be winsome is because the world is hopeless. Ironically, Many of the same people talking about faith are experiencing hopelessness. And I'm telling you, we are living right smack dab in the middle of hopelessness. Yeah, everything looks great around here. I mean, the cars are going by, the schools are in session, the Krogers are working, everybody's good. No, everybody's not good. We're living in a hopeless and dark place. Many of you know Kent and Karen Coy and they were in the first service and uh, granted me permission to share this. Many of you know Kent and Karen and, and their son Joey, uh, and I'm, their daughter's name's escaping me. Um, but you know them, and some of you invested in Kent's life when he was in Bible study here um, back you know, years ago. Uh, he's 27 years old now. Uh, he grew up here. He's now on the police force in Chesterfield outside of Richmond. On Friday, he received a life-saving award as an officer in the act of, you know, on on the line of, um, while he was doing his police work in the line of duty. What is the expression I'm trying to come up with? Anyway, um, on Friday, he received a life-saving award, and Kent and Karen were able to attend it. That's when they learned the details of what happened. So a troubled and hopeless teenager had threatened her own life. And in doing that, the authorities were made aware and she, was, she actually spoke to one, one officer and had a good conversation, at least the officer thought so, and he got her connected to the right people and they thought things were okay. They thought that the counseling situation was working well until the off-duty officer, after a few other things had happened, He got a phone call from her, and in the phone call, she simply said, tell my parents that I love them. 
few more words were exchanged. And then he went off duty. Thought he had it in the right hands and did. But then he received a text. And the text just had Rockwood Park, which is in Chesterfield County. Apparently a very large park. Something at least the size of Green Hill Park and fairly, you know, wooded area. So he sent that on to the officers on duty. Joey Coy, Joey was on duty. And several officers were involved because it's a large park. Joey got to her first. She had tied her shoelaces together and hung herself on a tree off of a ravine so that gravity could take her body right into death. When Joey got there, she was lifeless, unconscious, and, and he cut her down. Drug her back up the embankment and got her to EMS. And amazingly, they saved her life. I don't know, this happened some time back, I don't know her present status, but I do know this. I know two things. She got another chance. Wouldn't you like another chance? She got another chance. And she was hopeless. Why would you do that? In your mind, you're like, who would do that to them? Listen, when you get under the weight of hopelessness, when you get under the weight of hopelessness, you don't, you're not thinking rationally. I'm telling you right now, the world out here, and for many of us in here, it's hopeless. Jesus comes to bring hope. And, and you're going to have an opportunity I'm talking mostly to believers right now. You're going to have an opportunity to decide whether or not you want to take the extra five minutes and step into a conversation of hopelessness or whether or not you're just going to keep moving. I'm telling you in the next couple of weeks, a faith conversation or a hopeless moment is going to come and they, it might be the same thing. It might, they might intersect at the same time. But something, if you will have ears to hear, if you will have eyes to see, if you will have a willingness to build into your schedule now, okay, God, I'm going to watch for it and I'm going to watch for it and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step in. I don't know what to say. And some of you are already, you're already backing out. I can hear it in your minds. You're already backing out. You're look, you're, you're a pastor. You know what to do. No, I don't know what to do. And you will know what to do. Don't convince yourself that you can't do this. Don't convince yourself that you're not trained to do this. I'm increasingly amazed at how creative and ingenious people are about what they love. You can figure this out. So I know it's going to be intimidating. I know it's going to be challenging. I don't have all the answers. I don't know what to say either. In fact, I missed one this week. Would you be glad to know that? I don't know, maybe. I missed one. I was standing there and just like a Georgia receiver, right in the middle of the field, about to go down, about to score, and the ball went right through my hands. That happened this week. I'm not kidding. 
And, I, and I was, it was five minutes after I left the conversation, and I thought, man, you just dropped that one. So I drop them, you drop them, but look, it's going to happen. This week, you're going to have a chance. Next week, you're going to have a chance. The follow, sometime in the next few weeks, you're going to have a chance to enter a faith conversation, or you're going to have a chance to step into some hopelessness. And when it happens, oh man, we should pray that God would help us. Lord, I don't really know what to say, but I'm going to step toward her. I, you know, I mean, I wonder how Joey felt in this park while he's walking up to a body that's hanging lifeless. What's he do? He has to step in and get dirty and messy and, and get close to this lifeless body. So we should do that. We should not be afraid to step into the hopeless, hopeless moment and ask God to do what only he can do. Show us what to say. Show us how to care. Show us how to be warm, not judgmental. So I want to pray for that for you this week and for this holiday season. And then we're going to sing. Lord, I confess, I have dropped so many passes. Lord, we confess as a church, we have dropped so many passes. In fact, we've done some things that have just been, they've not been honoring to you or to your people. We need you. We need hope today. We need hope in the crucified and risen Christ. God, grant us hope and help us to take hope and faith into a dark, hopeless world. Would you give us patience? Would you give us the extra five minutes? Would you give us ears to listen, eyes to listen? Would you give us kindness? And what a beautiful thing it would be to see in the next few weeks gospel conversations beginning because of an openness. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's sing in response this morning.